Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin, founder of Nude Human Consulting. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about sexual addiction and recovery. This is something that I have had a few years of experience in. And specifically, I have worked with sex addicts and porn addicts within the Muslim community. And I've learned a lot. And I wanted to share some of these insights with the audience today. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes today. Visit patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem to support this show for as little as $1 a month. If you or someone you know is struggling with sex or pornography addiction, visit purifyyourgaze.com. What is addiction, first and foremost? Addiction is the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. One of the main points that I want everyone to remember throughout this podcast is that the opposite of addiction is connection. Because addiction by its nature is about escapism. It's about numbing ourselves or giving ourselves pleasure, relief. It's how we cope with difficulties in life. Now, naturally, if your addictions are good addictions, like when you get stressed or anxious or sad, you go read or exercise or do athqar of Allah, that's great. But oftentimes people go towards negative things, things that are harmful. So a person who is addicted to pornography or drugs, uh, these are individuals that are actually deepening that disconnect uh, from themselves, others, in the world. When it comes to sexual addiction, I'll provide two definitions. Number one, it is sometimes referred to as a progressive intimacy disorder characterized by compulsive sexual thoughts and acts. Number two, persistent and escalating patterns of sexual behavior acted out despite negative consequences to self and others. Now, specifically, what do porn addicts do? Uh, or sex addicts at large, but I'm, I'm going to be focusing mostly on pornography addiction, even though it falls under sexual addiction and tends to lead to other types of sexual addiction. Like often people who start with porn, they escalate in the nature of pornography, the content that they watch. For instance, it gets more extreme um, or even into the realm of Ill illegal pornographic material. Uh, and sometimes escalates to other things like online chats, massage parlors, uh, seeing escorts, or um, sleeping around with multiple partners. But specifically, sex addicts are individuals that spend excessive time consuming their sexual fantasies and are consumed by their sexual fantasies and urges. And so they spend time planning and engaging in those sexual behaviors. Secondly, a common theme is that they will repetitively engage in these sexual fantasies, urges, and behavior in response to low mood states like anxiety, sadness, boredom, hurt, irritability, etc. They repetitively engage in sexual fantasies and urges and, be and behavior in response to, the to any stressful uh, life events. Uh, they also have repetitive but unsuccessful efforts to control or significantly reduce these sexual fantasies and urges and behavior. A very common thing that we hear from people, you know, it's high time that I got help. I've, I've been trying to get rid of this myself for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and there's no success. 
Lastly, there's um, a repetition in engaging sexual behavior while disregarding the risk for physical or emotional harm uh, to oneself and others. This is another sign that you have a serious problem. So, for instance, people have, you know, ruined their marriages, um, you know, looked at pornography at work and lost their jobs or stayed up all night uh, looking at it and missing a flight to a very important conference or meeting, etc. So it gets to a place, ladies and gentlemen, where the addiction is not rational. It's something that often takes over a person's reasoning skills. And one addict said it best. He said, the will is very strong, just misdirected towards an illusion. Because often people assume that sexual addiction has to do with willpower. You're just being weak. Just stop already. But actually, willpower is very strong for the addict. I mean, as I discussed what porn addicts do, there is a re repetition, a structure, a planning, a constant um, seeking out of fulfillment of sexual fantasies, urges, and behaviors. So clearly the willpower is there. Somebody who spends three to 10 hours online looking for videos or the perfect escort or the perfect image, that is willpower manifesting. It is just misdirected towards this illusion of fulfillment, which we're gonna learn more about today. We all have been taught that Islam is a way of life and certainly it is a guiding manual for our lives. But sometimes this gets misunderstood through the assumption that if I become religious or I read more Quran or I make more dua, um, it'll go away because Islam has all the answers and can basically heal anything, right? Um, that's not the case when we need to treat cancer or fix our car or, you know, go get other types of treatments, we know that there are specialists for these specific needs. And oftentimes people will come to our program at Purify Your Gaze and say, you know, I've been making tawbah, I've been going back and forth with this, and I just can't stop, which is one of the signs that you're an addict. So let me first discuss this idea of tawbah. Uh, and in Islamic knowledge, we know that there are three essential steps to making real and sincere tawbah. The first one is accepting the mistake and taking responsibility for it. Number two is turning towards the one we wronged and asking forgiveness. And number three, we commit to stop. Now the problem is, is that we actually don't know how to stop, right? This is why people end up just staying in step one and two, they keep asking Allah for forgiveness or their wife for forgiveness or whoever they may have harmed. Uh, but then it just keeps going. Why is this happening? And the other thing is that a lot of people who come to the program are actually really good people. You know, they really love their deen. They love their family, their wives. Um, they often just don't know why they're not able to stop when it goes against their morality and it seems so irrational and so uh, consequential in a negative way. Well, it's because I think in this third step of tawbah, the commitment to stop doesn't actually manifest through prayer necessarily. You need an actual way or how-to process to commit to stopping something like this, especially if the evidence shows you keep going back to it no matter how guilty how much tawbah you've made and how bad you feel, there's still something in us that just isn't going away, what we also call the inner addict. So this is the process, in my opinion, of sexual recovery, which isn't often 
engaged with by many people. So this problem stays and doesn't go away. So let me tell you a story to kind of exemplify it here. Now imagine you have a young kid. Uh, he lives in a neighborhood and this neighborhood is known to be very clean and pristine. And one day he goes out and he spray paints graffiti on one of the big white clean walls in the town center. And so all the people find this graffiti there the next day and they're wondering who this person is. And they make announcements, they put it in the local newspaper, whoever, if you have any information about who did this, please come forth. Or if you did it yourself, you know, come forward, it's the right thing to do. So this young man finally feels the guilt and the shame and accepts his mistake and says, you know what, I'm going to take responsibility and go turn myself in. So this young man goes and he confesses to the mayor of the town. He says, you know, I'll, I'll make a public announcement to say I'm sorry. Uh, so this is the first step of Tawbah. He accepts his mistake and he asks forgiveness. Step number two, he turns back to those people and he asks forgiveness. And let's say the mayor and the people come together um, and they actually say, okay, we, we forgive you and uh, we understand. And the fact that you came forward is a good thing and you're being honest, but don't let it happen again. So the boy walks away feeling good about himself. He's like, yeah, great. I confessed. I asked for forgiveness from the people that I wronged. Um, and now I feel good. But give it a week or two or three. And before you know it, another wall in the town center has graffiti on it. And they, of course, pull him in again because he is the one who already confessed. Like, did you do this? He says, yeah, I did. And it's like, well, we just did a public announcement and apology and we forgave you. What's up? Why are you doing this again? He's like, I don't know. I just have this impulse to go spray graffiti on, on plain white walls. It's just what I want. Um, and they just don't understand what's going on. So they say, okay, this time you're going to have to clean the walls, right? So they're trying to implement step three of Tauba here, this commitment to stop. And maybe one of the ways to really commit to stopping is feeling the consequences of your wrong. And that's true. So they bring the kid and they say, you're spending all weekend. Here's, you're going to go to Home Depot and buy all the materials yourself out of your pocket. You're doing this community service work for the town. So he now spends all of Saturday and Sunday uh, cleaning this graffiti off, repainting, wearing the gloves. You know, his arms and back is aching. Uh, he can't do anything else. Everyone's walking by and seeing him clean it. Okay, the mayor thinks he's finally going to get it. He's not going to do this anymore. He cleans up the walls. A few weeks go by. And before you know it, there's more graffiti on a wall. What is going on here? So they bring the guy back in. And they start to ask even better questions. Where is your family? Who are your parents? We haven't noticed them, you know, come to any of these uh, events when we are, you know, sh publicly shaming you and putting you to these consequences. What's going on? And then they discover that the, ch the child's parents, um, they're not around. You know, they travel a lot um, and he spends a lot of time by himself at home because his parents travel for work and he has no siblings. And all of a sudden, the town and the mayor realize that, oh, there's something more going on here that has to be addressed if we really want to stop this kid from, you know, spreading all this graffiti all over our clean white walls. And before you know it, they, d they discover and, and start to have meetings with his family and recognize that there is some neglect, there's attachment issues, and that maybe this child was doing these things out of seeking attention and um, validation from 
people in his world because he wasn't getting any of that nourishment at home. This is where step three of how to commit to stop, finding out the deeper causes and issues of Tawbah really starts to take place. Now, if this child reconciles and heals all his unmet needs, there is a high chance he will stop with this rebellious and deviated behavior. So this story is meant to help us understand the porn or the sex addict. Every time you commit one of these sins, you're staining the purity of your heart. And every time you turn back to Allah or a person that you harmed as a result of your sexual addiction, you're, you may be getting forgiveness and then feeling good about it and walking away, but it keeps on happening. Now is the time where step three comes in. You have to commit to stop by feeling the consequences. And some people actually do, which is why they come to programs like Purify Your Gaze. Finally, the consequences have hit them and they can no longer run away from it or keep it the secret that they can overcome on their own. For example, my wife just left me or I lost my job or this happened or that happened. And now it's time to do something, right? So they show up and really try to fulfill this Part three. And so this is why Tauba, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes isn't enough, especially with something as difficult as a sexual addiction. Now, why are sexual addictions, specifically pornography, so much more difficult than cocaine or any other drug? Well, number one, accessibility. Everybody can access this stuff within one second on their phone, on their computers, and pretty much anywhere. Number two, affordability. You can, you don't have to pay for it. There are millions of websites where you can watch and observe and use this stuff for free. It's not like other drugs that cost a lot of money. And you don't need to go in any dark alleys to find it and what have you. And lastly, it's something that you do in private and in secret. It's very alienating and isolating. Nobody goes and sleeps with escorts in public or at some community center. It's always done in these private places. Pornography is done in private places. People do it at their home when they're alone, in bathrooms, in cars, you, you name it. They'll find a way. This is the other reason why this drug is so difficult because it's not like having a cocaine addiction or an alcohol uh, problem, some of these symptoms are going to be more even physically visible if you go through withdrawals. Whereas with pornography, um, you don't see, let's say, clear signs of, you know, your skin changing and what have you. Yes, there are emotional um, drastic changes in behavioral patterns, and you may notice a person shifting in how they generally are. But it is also something that is so private and isolating that you can get away with it and consider it to be something you can keep to yourself. Now, some of the common blocks that people come to purify your gaze with are, this is just a weakness, it's a flaw, it's not a big deal. Um, and so that's why they took so long to finally come to recovery. We minimize and rationalize or downsize the negative impact that it actually has on our psycho-emotional and spiritual well-being. And by Allah, it does damage and distort us in ways that often we're not even aware of or familiar with. Um, it does not go away simply by becoming a better Muslim. Some cases are even imams or people that are very quote-unquote religious, right? And they are, you know, they, they are doing a lot for the community, but this is a struggle that they have. So is it really about how much Qur'an you read or how much extra prayers you do, etc.? Not always. This is a psycho-emotional um, issue. 
that can only be healed through psycho-emotional science. Some people don't want to go to recovery because of the fear of discomfort to change or the fear of being exposed. And to those individuals, I say, look, you're suffering and in discomfort anyways as a hidden porn addict. You might as well suffer and be uncomfortable by coming to a community that will actually support you and embrace you and help you on your journey to become. Yes, it will be tough and challenging. Yes, it can be painful. But isn't the state you're in as an addict also the same. So which path would you rather live up to? Both are going to require suffering and discomfort to a degree, but which one's going to lead you to ultimate optimization in this life and the next? The other block that people have is there is a false attachment to the value and pleasure that pornography actually serves for them. And we're going to talk more about that later, but we need to also revamp the very mentality um, an emotional system which is using pornography as a drug to numb ourselves and give ourselves this pleasure uh, for the unmet needs that we're, we're not yet capable and equipped to fulfill in healthy and real ways. And lastly, the, a very common block is once I get married, this will all go away. So some people, again, reduce pornography to just sexuality um, and once I get married, this will go away. But again, a very large percentage of clients are married. And when they have gotten married, they didn't see this go away. So that's not the answer either. It's not about that. Because if pornography by its nature doesn't allow you to have full human experience and connection with another, how do you think you're going to get married and all of a sudden, all of that damage caused by 10, 20 years of pornography is just going to evaporate by signing a nikah document. It's not going to happen, right? You you may have an intimacy disorder or an attachment issues um, or other things. And we're now going to talk about what are some of the causes of pornography addiction. They have gone through something in their past development which has left them incomplete or empty uh, to some degree. Because remember, the opposite of addiction is connection, which means that if I am in an addiction, then there's something I am currently avoiding, unable to confront or heal within myself. And this is why the drug of choice is serving as that substitute. So for instance, individuals that have gone through forms of abuse in the past, it could be emotional, um, verbal, religious abuse, uh, and of course, sexual abuse. So in some cases, people who have had uh, sexual abuse at a young age, such as exposure or actual molestation happening at a young age, this can lead to uh, a type of addictive personality or harm and damage. Uh, there is, of course, the other point of neglect in one's family. So they weren't able to develop healthy intimacy and attachment to their caregivers uh, which affects the individual in the long term. Uh, other forms of trauma that could have occurred, which led to PTSD and this inability to truly cope and regulate one's emotions and feelings and triggers throughout their lives. So addictions can serve as that substitute. Uh, and lastly, this idea of family dysfunction, which can include all of the other three, abuse, neglect, and trauma, but growing up in a family where a person feels suboptimal 
in their existence and value and worth. I want to focus today specifically ideas of attachment and intimacy disorders because I find this to be the most common theme in the cases that I've worked with. And this is important, ladies and gentlemen, because some of the myths about sex addicts is that they're just all perverts who you know, love sex too much and they're just sick. Uh, it's not always so because as I said, it's not rational. Sometimes a person isn't even getting sexual pleasure or arousal from their addiction anymore, but yet they still pursue it because there's something else in them, some other broken piece that for whatever reasons, sexual addiction helps heal and mend that. And when we learn more about attachment and intimacy disorders, I think we'll have a better understanding of how that can be the case. So the first thing we have to understand is the very fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings as social creatures and creatures in need. I mean, when you think about it, our existence is about worshiping, serving, adoring, and connecting to Allah, right? That's why we're all here. It's to connect first and foremost in our divine relationship. And our family relations are the first place where we get to establish a healthy sense of self and ability to take on life as it truly is. So humans require physical and psycho-emotional bonding from their caregivers to not only survive as creatures, but to, but to thrive as individuals. And if this is not present, then we're going to have some issues, right? Because we're not optimizing our natural uh, state or condition necessary to survive and thrive as human beings. And what I mean by this is there has been research to strongly suggest the importance of affection and connection of human beings. Take the simple fact that in prison, what's the worst punishment you can have? Solitary confinement. Why? Because human beings are not designed to be isolated and alienated like that. So it's actually a type of suffering, even though this person isn't being stabbed or burned, but just being alone in the dark with no contact can cause pain and damage and trauma. The, the founder of attachment theory in, the, in psychology, he was studying orphaned children in orphanages after World War II. And he found that, you know, even though these kids had food and shelter um, and they were being taken care of in their physical needs, often these children would not develop emotional and social intelligence later on in life. And some of these children even died at a young age, even though there was nothing to show uh, medically speaking, um, why they were dying out. And so his conclusion was that because humans need this early stage of attention, affection, approval established. So it's not enough to just have nurses that pick you up and change you and pat you and feed you and put you down, but there has to be an intentional conscious connection with this human being in order for it to survive and thrive. SubhanAllah, there's this part of us that even if materially we're taken care of, we're not going to do that well if spiritually, emotionally, and mentally we aren't nourished and provided for as well. They even did studies with monkeys and showed that when you have two mom avatar monkeys, one that is meant to be very uh, cozy and had soft you know, fur and, and very warm and inviting to the baby monkeys, the other one had none of that but they held a big bottle of milk. 
they found that the baby monkeys were still more inclined to go to the one without milk, but the one that felt more warm and fuzzy and they could snuggle up against, which is fascinating that even a child who is a monkey will want uh, that cozy affection and approval before it will go to food. And it's not even a mammal that has as much complexity as we do as human beings. This is just to demonstrate how emotional health and human attachment is a necessary part of being human. Now, what this also includes to have healthy emotions and attachment is attention, affection, approval. Love, bonding, and belonging to your caregivers, first and foremost, and then abroad to society. Safety and security and vulnerability as a young individual also has to be cultivated. If I don't trust or feel confident that I can go to my family for help or support, there's always going to be a part of me that feels lost and unfulfilled. And so this reliable support and connection and validation with our early caregivers is necessary as it produces an intimacy um, within the individual, an ability to have intimacy, as well as meaningful and pleasurable existence, right? Because emotional intimacy and health is pleasurable. I mean, we know this. When you have a wonderful conversation with a friend or a great time with your family, there's a, there's a pleasure to that. It's certainly not painful, right? So some examples that I have come across is you have, let's say, a person who... Um, needs their parents' validation or help or support because they're being bullied at school. And the parents, you know, don't really help them or even make fun of them because they're being picked on or their money's being taken away. Or they have siblings that are, you know, devaluing them and not giving them the help or advice that they need. This young person is going to feel alienated and disconnected. Another case, a person may have gone through something as severe as being abused by, let's say, a different family member or family friend, and they finally work up the courage to go tell their parents, and the parents don't believe them. I mean, what is that going to do to a person who went through this trauma and doesn't get this support? Another case could be where you grow up in a family that you observe a lot of verbal and emotional abuse between your parents or other siblings, and you recognize from an early age that, you know, going to your family for emotional support or affection only makes you feel worse. So you start to now detach from your family and no longer look for these needs from them because there isn't a reliable and consistent experience for emotional health and intimacy within your family. And so sometimes our cultures that become very authoritative in our families, um, whether it's because of our ethnic or religious authority, um, we can sometimes damage our children by making things all about listening and not exploring uh, a person's needs or voice their thoughts or their wants. In other words, the children don't have a sense of security and vulnerability with their parents. Their whole life has been about responding and reacting to the expectations and demands of their family. And so this healthy sense of individuality and intimacy as, an, as a person doesn't get developed. Their whole life is based on my worth and love is conditional if I meet the needs and expectations of my community, of my family, and sometimes of, 
you know, false notions of religion. So these things are very unique to the Muslim community specifically because we sometimes lack emotional intelligence within our culture and family. There have been so many cases um, that I've worked with where people don't actually express love and vulnerability and connection in their families. Everything is is pretty, you know, surface, administrative, even cold and distant. And of course, you have the spectrum all the way to, you know, straight up abusive and manipulative and even using religion or authority as a way to weaponize guilt into the child doing what the parents want them to do. Now, when, when caregivers are successful in nourishing this essential component of what it means to be human, we walk away feeling things like, I actually matter in this world and to my family. I have value as an individual. Uh, I am worthy of being known, understood, and loved. I'm able to express myself uh, within my family uh, environment, and that allows me to be a more confident person and a person that feels a sense of belonging. So voicing our needs and finding that fulfillment. Now, for example, a person can, let's say, say, well, I'm not going to let my kid just say whatever they want and whatever they think. And I understand that. I mean, if your child comes to you and starts claiming blasphemy or, or look, I, I think I'm, you know, I want to have a girlfriend or I, I want to drink alcohol or whatever it is, you, of course, it's going to upset you. But there's a big difference between just shutting it down and yelling at them and telling them that they're grounded and they have to do the opposite without explaining or giving that meaning or that compassionate consultation, which is what the Prophet ﷺ did. Take the man who loved zina and he went to the Prophet and asked him for to, to make zina halal for him. The Prophet ﷺ didn't say to him, you're disgusting, who do you think you are, what kind of a pervert are you, and you come to me, the messenger of God, to ask me to make zina halal for you? What's wrong with you? He didn't talk to him like that. He allowed him to voice his needs, and then he held a safe space for him, and he addressed it with wisdom and compassion. He said to the man, you have a sister, you have a daughter, you have an aunt, a mother. You know, he referred to the females in his family. And he said, how would you like it if other men approached them to fulfill the sexual needs that you are asking to fulfill? How would you like it if someone went to your mom and said, I want to do this with her and you shouldn't have a problem? He said, no, that would be a problem for me. He said, what about your sister? And the man said, I wouldn't want that. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to tap into his heart and have this humanistic plug to help him see the consequences and the emotional hurt that he was tapping into as the man himself who wanted to commit zina and recognize that if others did that to him, it's not what he would want. And so therefore, he was able to reconcile and cope with this urge or desire to commit zina. So this is what I mean by allowing our children and our family members to have a voice, to be able to hold space to talk about things, even if it's something shocking or haram or, you know, something you don't even know how to handle, you know, try to be calm and try to learn about the subject so that you can have a meaningful dialogue and explanation to have your child recognize why it may not be the best idea to join a fraternity um, or to go be with a boyfriend or girlfriend, or whatever else they may bring up which could shock you. 
Um, and then that's just the stuff that is difficult to deal with. What about things like your child wanting to show you something they drew, or they want to talk to you about something that's bothering them, or you don't even go out of your way as a caregiver or parent to check in with your, your kids beyond, did you do your homework and did you pray today? but actually trying to connect with them as human beings and honorable creatures that Allah chose for them to be here just like you and me. And that intrinsically gives us honor. لَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي Adam, As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, the fact that you and I are here means Allah chose for us to be here. So we all deserve basic connection and affection and attention and approval, especially from our caregivers. And when caregivers are successful in nourishing this aspect of us, we're also able to develop better emotional and social intelligence. We develop coping skills, how to regulate our negative emotions and challenges in our lives. Because all our lives, we've had this healthy support system with our family. We've learned how to cope and get through the tough times through wisdom and guidance and mentoring of our families. This is why Islam emphasizes the health of our family so much, ladies and gentlemen. And we also recognize and remember that our purpose is both divine and worldly, not just about what school you get into, how much money you make, what career you get, and what color skin the woman or man you marry happens to be. There is more to our life and existence and meaning than sometimes our community fixates on. Now to summarize that previous part, typical adulthood is when early healthy attachment and emotional intimacy is developed and nourished. And as we grow and mature as a man and a woman, this emotional health and intimacy converges and upgrades, if you will, into a form of sexual expression and bodily bonding through marital love right? So we're not going to be able to have marital love if we've never experienced familial love and connection and vulnerability and affection. How are we going to have that stuff in a marriage if we didn't have it in our family and with ourselves? So when you think about it, healthy intimacy plus um, sexuality equals marital love in the future, which is ideally a union of mind, heart, and body. But what tends to happen with sex addicts specifically, is that intimacy is it fades away and it shuts down. The person who has gone through neglect, abuse, trauma, or family dysfunction, this lack of fulfillment and coping skills develops loss of trust, a loss of worth and belonging, and our ability naturally to attach effectively to our caregivers is gone. So the person starts to realize from an early age or throughout their lives even, sometimes it continues into adulthood unfortunately, that our caregivers, our family, our friends are not reliable sources of intimacy and affection and attention and approval. In other words, I get more hurt and rejected when I go to these sources of support and it leaves me worse off than, than before. So perhaps it's just better to shut this part of me down and live without it. And this is an unnatural decision and form of repression. This is where the disconnect starts for the individual. And what happens is it increases the likelihood for addiction and, for, and future disorders in the person. Why? Because we internalize this unworthiness this defectiveness, this alienation, 
and we detach from this intrinsic need for human connection and emotional fulfillment. And so we start to deny our feelings. We avoid intimacy. We even um, don't even know how to regulate and cope with our emotions. So we have things like emotional outbursts. And in order for us to deal with our challenges, we're going to have to find a substitute. We're going to have to find a substitute because this disassociation from this natural part of what it means to be human and connected to our families and others and ourselves will now lead us to need hyper-stimulating and satiating um, substitutes for this part of us that never gets fulfilled or met in the natural, healthy way. And this is the cycle of addiction. This disconnect and this void in us is now filled by an artificial connector. People can use cocaine, alcohol, you know, um, all kinds of drugs, and sex can certainly be one of them, which then further distances the person from themselves, others, and the world because this drug only makes them more disconnected because remember, addictions by definition and drugs by definition is about what? Synthetic pleasure, artificial pleasure, escapism, numbing ourselves, um, avoiding what is difficult and challenging in our lives, as well as using the drug for when we have difficulties and challenges in our lives. So this disconnect actually deepens and thus increases our need for the addiction. And this is the cycle. The emptiness in me needs to be filled and it's usually filled with a drug. The more I use this drug, the more my dependency becomes an addiction. And then this addiction deepens my disconnect and alienation, which then increases my need for the drug and the addiction itself. Now, why pornography and sex seems to be a very common drug? Because a lot of people who come to the program, you know, they don't usually have, alhamdulillah, issues with alcohol or, or cocaine or crystal meth. When it comes to our Muslimness, these are things that we've, you know, alhamdulillah, been able to stay clear from, right? Which is good. But why then is sexual addiction and pornography so hard to get rid of? Or how can somebody really have this in their life when they are really sincerely trying their best to be good Muslims? Well, I have a theory on this. I think that if an intimacy or attachment disorder gets developed in our upbringing, this essential piece of us, i.e. the intimacy and emotional health, it fades out and is falsely fulfilled with the drug and addiction. And why sexuality is a good substitute for this? Well, because emotional regulation and emotional needs, things like pleasure and connection and affection and bonding and validation, all of these fall under healthy intimacy. When you really think about it, sexuality reflects and requires many of the same needs of emotional intimacy. You also experience pleasure and sexuality and affection and approval and bonding and belonging to with the person you're making love to. Nobody is going to be able to make love to someone if they don't feel validated by that person or that they feel affection or accept, uh, acceptance by that person. So sexuality, because it's the natural upgrade or the mature expression of intimacy and emotional health in adulthood through marriage, I think sexuality becomes a very alluring drug of choice because it helps us feel like we're getting some of that those needs met even though we're not and we're actually damaging and distorting our minds and hearts and souls more so 
to not be able to get intimacy and emotional health fulfilled. So people who experience a difficulty regulating fear, anger, anxiety, hurt, rejection, their shame, it's alleviated through this agent of sexuality because the world of porn and sex addiction gives us intense pleasure. It helps us numb ourselves from all the problems of the world. We zone out into the drug. We escape. And people can spend hours and a lot of money on this type of addiction. And one of the things that people always say is, I want to be ready for marriage. I want to fix my relationship with Allah, but I also want to be ready for marriage. And when you think about it, if this emotional intimacy need was lost, part of the, the path of recovery is to realize this, recognize how it happened and why, and then begin to implement ways to fulfill these intimacy attachment needs um, now and today. And sometimes that requires revamping our relations with our families, ourselves, with Allah, or even with the deen and our community. Because we want to get to a place where we now feel worthy and open to intimacy, capable of connection, which is our nature as human beings. The other thing is that people who are addicted to pornography have now unfortunately associated sexual pleasure and orgasms with tons of guilt and shame, which makes them feel more alienated and isolated. So also helping them realize that this pleasure of sex and love is meant to be fulfilled without that guilt. And you're meant to be rewarded for it, not run the risk of being punished for it. We also recognize that marital love and marriage is actually the pinnacle of sexual and emotional intimacy. And that is the end goal, to be a complete human being within ourselves, is to find a partner to unify with and create a new family so that our species can perpetuate and be better in the next generation. Isn't that the ultimate goal? If you or someone you know may be a sex addict, there's a few more things you should know. And this is my attempt to help you demystify the pleasure and power and allurement that's falsely assigned to the pornography addiction. Number one, I have no doubt in my mind and heart that this is an instrument used by the shaitan. It's a demonic tool to destroy human possibility spirituality, families, and health. Muslims and non-Muslims alike have plenty of research and data to show this. But think about this. The world of pornography is like the collective libido of the planet. Every sexual fantasy and urge and scenario is up there on the cloud. Any, any sick person out there can record themselves, can put up whatever they want. That's besides, you know, the actual pornography industry, right? Which, which makes all these fake plastic polished videos, which are insanely inaccurate when it comes to real human connection, love, sex, and emotional uh, union, okay? So you're, you're basically accessing this collective libido and manifestation of shaitanic drive through people's nefs. This is what we're doing. Secondly, it's totally missing the realistic human elements that exist in real sexual 
experiences and encounters, right? So first and foremost, porn stars are not real. Most of them are, you know, on coke when they're recording these videos. They have surgery and fake implants and this. It's all plastic and pristine and fake. They, you know, pretend like there's all this pleasure going on because it's entertainment. It's a form of entertainment. When you go to escorts, they don't really care about you. A lot of times people go to escorts uh, because they're looking for that attention, affection, approval. They want to feel lovable and worthy. And that's what escorts do. That's their job is to make you feel like you're the most important person as their client. But if you leave that, you know, scene, they're not going to care what happens to you after that. There's no real human connection there. So it's all fake and synthetic. And we're missing out on this through this sexual addiction. It gives us this false impression. The other lie of pornography is watching something through a screen doesn't give you the real picture of this is another human being. This is someone's daughter, sister, mother, cousin, or even wife. There's no sense or smells through the screen of pornography. There's no discomfort because of a position. There's no emotional connection, no real eye contact with this person, no texture. All of this is missing when you're watching videos of people having sex. You also don't access the potential risk of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, or heartbreak, or abuse, or manipulation that could happen from being uh, sexually deviant in your actual life. All of these things you don't experience through the screen of pornography. So again, this illusion that it's like a lesser evil or that it's not that damaging is false because you're not actually experiencing what it totally is all about, right? And you're conditioned now to believe that this is what sex is like or how it's supposed to be or the aim of what I want it to be once I get married. These are very damaging and distorting perceptions. Also, when you think about it, the argument of, well, watching pornography is still less of an evil than committing real zina. Again, I don't think that's a strong argument because zina can be committed with the eyes as well as with the limbs. And when you're watching pornography, you are still doing both, aren't you? You're, most people are masturbating to this. And just to take it a step further, if pornography is less of an evil than zina, but pornography itself is zina most of the time, right? You know, the best case scenario you have is, you know, a married couple that just record themselves, for example, and they put it on, on the internet. It's like, oh, well, they're married. They're not committing zina. Yeah, but now they're doing a different type of fahsha and foulness by, you know, revealing this private space to the world to enjoy. So when you think about it, you're harnessing other people's zina and other people's sickness for your own pleasure and release, you know, by watching all of this. You're actually witnessing all this zina and all of this filth constantly. It's like the same thing as you eating other people's garbage for food, you know, when you want a meal, even though you can buy healthy, good food and make a meal at home, right? It's like, who would do that? Nobody would go into the garbage and eat food when they have food in the refrigerator. Uh, you also have to remember that porn actors themselves, men and women, most of them, have the same issues as the one who's actually addicted to pornography. Porn addicts themselves have issues of neglect and abuse and intimacy disorders. It's not always just for the money. 
There's a lot of ways you can make money. It's not the only way you can make money. So porn actors themselves do suffer from depression and suicide and substance abuse and trauma. There's also articles and documentaries about this too. So the very people that you're seeking out for your addiction are themselves addicted and disconnected to a lot of the things that you are when you think about it. And lastly, you know, a conscious Muslim when they're watching a movie or a show or something and an inappropriate sexual scene comes on, especially if we have kids around, or our parents were around when we were kids, what would we always do? We would fast forward, right? Because we're, we don't want to be exposed to this. Now think about on Yom Al-Qiyamah. Visualize that you're going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala one day and watch a movie about your whole life. And instead of fast forwarding through your sins of sexuality and pornography usage, those parts of your life will be slowed down in slow motion. Okay, And when you really add up the minutes and the hours, that should strike our hearts to want to take action now. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, your nafs, yourself, can be conditioned to like anything. This is why exposure and repetition of any stimuli can become a habit or something that you seek. Take a smoker, for example. Anybody who smokes today did not like it the first time they had that cigarette. It was disgusting. And they thought, I don't want to do this again. But how did they keep going? Well, the right environmental and personal circumstances and then continuous usage became the addiction and now they can't live without smoking every day. So humans can adapt and condition themselves to anything. Just because it feels good or gives false fulfillment doesn't mean it is good or right. And that's one of the other steps of the process of recovery is reconditioning the very mentality and state of heart which has this false association to the drug itself. To close, my focus today was more on the intimacy and attachment disorders that are a result of most people that I have personally worked with. And specifically as a Muslim community who sometimes in our families and our cultures, we lack emotional intelligence and intimacy and emotional fulfillment with each other, our spouses, our children, our parents. I believe this is a very important wake-up call to realize that we can reduce the likelihood of these things happening. If our cultures overemphasize authority and, you know, religious submission without deeper meaning and consulting and compassion. We lack affection, approval, uh, attention and bonding and vulnerability and expression in our families. We're going to damage people more than we think. And alhamdulillah, as I said, from the cases I've worked with, many of these individuals don't struggle with alcohol and drugs and all these other things. But sex seems to be the drug of choice for many Muslims. And I think it has to do with this connection, with the lack of healthy intimacy and attachment that seems to be quite observable in many families in our community. So I hope, inshallah, that people will you know, take this in and remember that a place like Purify Your Gaze does help uh, support the recovery process by understanding and evaluating their personal development, uh, what could be some of the causes for this addiction over time, and how to regain 
emotional health and intimacy in ourselves and with others, how to reconnect and find healthy, positive fulfillment for these unmet needs, which is part of our design and creation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive us and guide us and show us the way. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Support the show at patreon.com for as little as $1 a month. Thank you for tuning in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.